Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Great to have you back. Simon Alicia here in very cold Melbourne, Australia. Being joined today by a special guest, I'm joined by Darren Briskman. Welcome, Darren. Hi there. Now, Darren's part of the developer outreach group within uh, Amazon Web Services, so he talks to developers all over the place all the time. Now, Darren, I think you're Oregon-based, um, but you get around a fair bit by the sounds of things. I do. And in fact, uh, today I'm, I'm not far from home. I'm up in Seattle where it's very strange. It's, there's blue sky and sunshine and all the stuff that you don't normally get in Seattle. <laughs> Unseasonal Seattle weather. Now, it is a little noisy in the background. We've, we've gone as quiet as we can to try and get a conversation, but I know many of you are very focused on audio quality and I do appreciate the feedback on that as we evolve it. You will hear uh, real live Amazon noises in the background, I guess we could call them, Darren. Wouldn't you say that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you can hear the cloud being built. <laughs> so, so, Darren, you're going to talk to us a bit about um, serverless databases, in particular in memory. And um, I, I guess I wanted to preface the discussion by the fact that, you know, in the past, the long-distance past, uh, people would use in-memory kind of sparingly because RAM cost a huge amount of money and you couldn't get big uh, devices, et cetera. It was, it was kind of tough to use. But it's always been a pattern used in you know, high-speed trading and other latency-sensitive applications. Now it's much more democratized, I guess we could say. Um, what are you seeing around in-memory, and I think we're going to talk a bit about Redis in particular? Yes, because we're seeing a real transition happening in the technologies that are used for data management and data services. So, you know, if we roll the clock back, oh, say, five to seven years ago, then uh, everybody figured the wars are over, the decisions are made, everything that matters will be done forever on relational databases. And relational databases are, of course, a child of the late 80s and the early 90s and were designed uh, initially to optimize the ability to enter data into operational systems. And not everything out there uh, is relational. There's, you know, columnar databases and other special, special databases for uh, business intelligence, for data warehousing, and for other needs. And what's changed over the last, uh, call it five years, is, as you pointed out, a radical decrease in the relative cost of memory. And as I'm sure everyone listening to this knows, memory is an order of magnitude faster than even the fastest uh, long-term storage devices. So that lets you do things in milliseconds or nanoseconds that would take significantly longer time. Well, nanoseconds uh, in the memory. From a database operation, we're typically able to do things in microseconds. So this is where we're getting into the new world of database design. And it also is an interesting convergence with the whole emergence of cloud and the advantages for development and speed of development in cloud 2.0. So a couple of these trends come together for us right now. So one of those trends is uh, if you look at the biggest advantage from the cloud, or one of the biggest advantages from the cloud, is that we're able to automate processes that historically took a lot of human interaction. And humans are great, but we're kind of slow. And it takes forever for us to talk to each other because we have this you know, incredibly inefficient communications interface that we do by vibrating air, which you know, you're listening to right now. So how do we actually get rid of that? Well, we've all used cloud. When we use services like EC2 or S3, one of the biggest advantages is you don't have to deal with an infrastructure team. You make a couple of clicks and your environment is there. 
We're now seeing us have that same issue of being able to go beyond dealing with DBAs. DBAs are great people who do important work, but when developers don't have to interact with them, it radically decreases the time it takes to make projects go from ideas to working pants. Again, more of the integration, the continuous delivery, the continuous integration, and most importantly, the productivity you get from the cloud. Now, the other trend that converges in here is databases taking more advantage of memory. And part of that is also databases becoming less structured. So relational databases are, of course, called that because they have all of the tables and the relationships between the tables. All the work that goes on inside that database for referential integrity and keeping rows and columns and structure. This is great for what they're designed to do, but they actually get in the way of speed of development sometimes. So we've been seeing the emergence of a whole wave of NoSQL databases, which are not highly structured, but instead are essentially key value stores. And then when you take a bunch of keys and values in a group, that's a document. So of course that includes AWS Dynamo, and DynamoDB and a number of other uh, products that are out there that people use. Now, with those, it's interesting with those new types of databases. You know, it's it's often engineering choices are all about optimizing for particular aspects, and clearly with those kinds, we tend to optimize for performance and for scale, um, because they solve problems that relational databases maybe weren't well suited to solving. Yes, the biggest problem that they solve uh, is again that generally called schemaless, which I think is a bit of a misnomer, because you still have to have a schema. I mean, in theory, I could have a million documents in my database that are each completely different from each other, but then no application could deal with it. The difference is, in the relational world, the schema is set and enforced by the database, and changing that schema is, is kind of a big deal and takes a lot of work. In a NoSQL database, the schema is controlled by the application. And if some documents have one schema and other documents have a different schema, no big deal, as long as the application is aware of it. So one of the keys you might have in your document is, you know, this is, what is version and a version number. And have the application know that if it's version 2, then I'll have the schema X, and if it's version 3, I'll have schema Y. That gives you a lot of flexibility to deal with changing requirements much more quickly. As pointed out, there's a lot of other pieces there. And then Redis is one that I want to talk about, because that's a very interesting thing. So for those not familiar with Redis, Redis is not that old. It came uh, out uh, towards the end of the last decade. Uh, originally, it stood for remote directory service, but it's kind of extended into a memory resident uh, key value store, and for some uses, database. So Redis is radically fast and radically simple. One thing that makes it so fast is, unlike some other NoSQL databases, Redis was designed to run only in memory. And because of that, it doesn't have to have all of the structures that are involved in writing things out to disk and storing things on different formats. So even traditional databases that can run in memory run slower than something that's designed to run in memory like Redis. When I say fast, generally, read and write operations on Redis operate in the 200 to 400 microsecond. So, uh, and so I'm talking 0.2 to 0.4 milliseconds. And we can scale that to fairly high numbers. Um, we haven't published official benchmarks. Others have published benchmarks that they run on, on, our, uh, on our world using our Elastic Cash for Redis service and have seen things over 600,000 transactions per second. 
So you can drive it pretty fast and and go with very low latency. Just to contextualize that, you know, what types of applications benefit from having this kind of technology available to them? That's a that's a that's an interesting world. So because let's talk to be fair, the downside of this, if you are memory resident, that means that if the memory goes away, you're gonna lose data. So there are tricks you can do like replication. So, but of course, that increased cost because I'm going to have extra nodes. And other tricks I can do, like occasionally writing the things out to disk, taking snapshots, writing that out to a store to, you know, in our world, writing that out to either local disk or ADS so that there's a place to store it. That limits the amount of data loss that you have. But because I don't have absolute certainty that the data will always be there, it's not the best choice for a use case where absolute integrity is necessary. It's a great choice, however, when, as you pointed out, we have things that need a lot of speed at scale. So three that I see our clients using that I I think are really interesting to watch. One of them is is around product catalog. So this combines with search products like our Cloud Search or Amazon Elasticsearch service, where I'm going to be doing searching, search service, we'll build an index, I find the index, and then I want to grab that product really quickly to display it on my, say, e-commerce site. So this becomes a great database to put that product catalog, especially when I have complex product catalogs where I need to store things with different localizations. So I might have the same information in multiple languages, for example, or when I need to be able to do something that's going to um, be able to deal with complex rules. So one good subset of the travel of the uh, product catalog world is travel where you have all sorts of really arcane and complicated rules to chunk through when you're figuring out for a given traveler which hotel rates and which airline rates and so on that they are entitled to see. Using a memory resident database means I can go through those complex rules and pull that stuff back in millisecond timescales. It's funny how we kind of take that for granted, that that experience that I'm sure most most of our listeners have had when they're doing selection, etc., and we're all, as consumers, very sensitive to how long it takes for that you know, progress bar to move through all my choices. But when you think about the volume of data, the currency of data that has to be processed, if you're not doing it in memory, there's no way you could do it. Exactly. And the travel industry has done things in memory for decades until fairly recently they had to do all this using very expensive mainframe technologies. There's some specific in-memory mainframe technologies that were developed in the early 70s that are still widely used. But very quickly now, they're being replaced with cloud technologies using these in-memory, technologies, in-memory databases. Throw another example out there that I, I find interesting is, is in the banking world, the need to be able to do fraud detection. So you run your credit card, and the standard in banking is from the time that somebody runs the card, uh, they, it should be able to approve or deny within two seconds. Because after all, there's people standing online and you're blocking the next purchase. So there's a target of two seconds, and out of those 2,000 milliseconds, well, more than half of it goes to network. So you have to give it 1,000 to 1,200 milliseconds to go out to uh, the data center where this is checked and back. So in reality, you've got about 800 milliseconds to look at that transaction and figure out, okay, is this card valid? Is this user valid? Do they have enough credit? And is this a fraudulent transaction? Is this something that doesn't look right for the pattern of how we know this person should operate? 
So in reality, your total fraud detection world, you've got about 400 milliseconds to look at something and come back with, yes, I approve, no, I deny, or perhaps a middle choice, which is uh, send that over to a service agent who can then call the store and, and talk to the customer. So with only 400 millisecond budget, you don't have any time for the big database to be popping things around. And because we can have millions or billions of objects in here, stored in memory and able to pull them back in microseconds each, that allows us to do this transaction over and over and over again. Now, many people listening have probably had the frustrating experience of having uh, a fraud called on them because they were traveling or otherwise really legitimate. We've seen that as the memory resident databases go out, the number of false positives goes down a lot. So the industry standard for this um, today, well, let's back up. So 10 years ago, uh, about one transaction out of 8,000 was flagged as fraudulent and it had a false positive rate of over 70%. Today, we've got more like one out of 20,000 being marked as potentially fraudulent, and the false positive rate has gone down to about 20% for those who are using the in-memory database technology. So I can move more data, be more accurate, while still staying inside that time budget. And this is a really great example of where you know improvements in technology actually improve the business experience. And that's something... As developers and IT professionals, we are often accused of getting away from, which is, well, the technology is all well and good, but it's the value back to the business that's really the critical piece. So getting access to this quickly and easily is important. So I'm going to do the easy stuff and leave the hard stuff to you, Darren. But um, if our listeners want to use Redis on AWS, the easiest way is to just fire up Elasticash for Redis. And Elasticash will build the Redis node and the cluster and it'll let you do things like read replicas and choose different sizes according to your um, your uh, requirements. Um, and it is Redis, isn't it? I mean, it just basically should just work. If you're using Redis at the moment as a standalone, you should be able to switch across um, version support-wise. I'll, I'll run through the numbers because nothing is better than running through the numbers. Um, we support Redis 2.6.13, 2.8.6, 2.8.19, 2.9.1, 2.9.2, 2.9.3, 2.9.4, 2.9.5, 2.8.21, 22, 23, 24. So there's a pattern there. Um, so there's quite a few versions there, but essentially it's very quick and easy to spin up uh, Elasticash for Redis, get a primary node, get read replicas. You can do multi-AZ with backup, etc. So I've done the easy stuff, Darren. What's the tricky stuff that developers should know? What's the cool stuff that they should be aware of if they want to use it? Well, there's a bunch of great things in there. So... One place I would advise people um, uh, to take a look is at our blogs and, frankly, other people's blogs. Because one of the great things about Redis, we've been talking about using it as a database, but you can also use it to tack on to other things to make other data work well. So people often use Redis, for example, to show leaderboards about you know, who's winning in a game or something else for scoring. Redis has data sets that make it incredibly easy to do that, even when the core data is in another database. Redis also has uh, great tools for doing atomic counters to keep track of low-level things in a way that because it's an atomic transaction, you can be sure that you're never, for example, selling the same piece of merchandise to two different customers or, uh, or allowing uh, 35 people to enroll in a class that has a limit of 30. Let's throw out a lot of other cool things that we can do with Redis. 
would point out that it's Redis compatible because like many technologies, like we've done those familiar perhaps with the Amazon Aurora services, which are MySQL compatible, but we rewrote the engine in order to take advantage of the cloud. Redis, we are certainly part of the open source world and it is 100% Redis compatible in the APIs and the interfaces and the clients that we use. But under the hood, we rewrote a good chunk of Redis in order to make sure that it was hardened, scalable, and was able to take advantage of the cloud. So we're able to get the best possible performance in that environment. And as you said, with ElastiCache, the hard work's done for you. We manage it, we upgrade it, we make sure that it's there and it's running. Um, all you really need to do is decide how big a node you want and uh, let it rip. Uh, in the free tier, we offer 750 hours a month of a uh, cache.t2.micro node, which is enough to uh, certainly test and see how things run. The other, of course, common use of this is for caching. So when you have any other database to park elastic cache in front of it, which is, of course, where the name comes from, and then watch that database become more performant and actually reduce the amount of database that you probably need. So I'll throw out one uh, quick example. Our customer Expedia, who are well-known in the travel industry, big users of Dynamo, love Dynamo, but when they, they found that when they put ElastiCache with Redis in front of their Dynamo, uh, their total database expenses went down about 80%, down to about one-fifth of what they were paying before, actually one-sixth of what they were paying before because we were able to take advantage of the caching technologies and not have to do expensive SQL calls every time somebody was pinging to say, is there a better price on this airplane? So a lot of fun things that we can do, and I would strongly urge everyone out there to fire up ElastiCache and play with it. Redis is a fascinating environment. It's got lots of cool things in it, and it's, it's the easiest database you'll ever play with. It uh, definitely makes life easier. It, it, you're right, it is a different world once you start conceptualising in memory and what that means from a speed perspective whilst taking into account the, the different durability profile. Um, one of the other nice things, I was just you know thinking about the different instance types we have available within, um, within ElastiCache to create nodes out of, and one of them that we have available is the... Um, in the R3 8x large family, which has a nifty 244 gigabytes of RAM on board, um, you can cram a fair bit of data in one of those suckers. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and of course, we're always committed to improving and advancing the product. So, you know, we're not happy to sit on where this is now. And if you keep an eye, I'm sure you'll see many interesting things as we go to provide uh, ever lower costs and more powerful capabilities. But even sure. today, yeah, now admittedly, if you have a 10 terabyte database, no, you don't want to put that in there. That's that's the 10 terabytes or a petabyte, those are probably not great use cases for memory databases. Caching that 10 terabyte, hot data out of that 10 terabyte makes a lot of sense. But if you want to do things completely uh, online or completely in memory, then we do want to keep, we need to keep that under the size of the memory. So that is one of the things in mind when you're thinking about your use case. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting how we think about how, you know, memory sizes and storage sizes have grown over time and what we consider normal and what is uh, cost effective. Uh, I think the, the fundamental thing we know is that the sizes will always get bigger. So, uh, one day our, our listeners will be sitting there saying, oh, I remember when you could only get 244 gigabytes of, uh, of RAM and, uh, you know, it was so small. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
It's horrible. I mean, you could, yeah, you, terrible. You could, the, the privation that we had to go through. That's, that's only enough to keep the you know genome scans of like 50 people. I, mean, I know. How could you live with that? How are we supposed and, to live? Capacity? <laughs> exactly. It's a uh, so, yes, we've also... I, I am old enough to remember when a terabyte was a vast amount of memory. And now it's, you know, the, the, the hard drive on, on, on my home computer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Well, Darren, thanks so much for coming on to, to the podcast to have a bit of a chat. Uh, really great to have you on board and appreciate your insights. Thank you. And everybody out there, uh, have fun with Amazon Web Services. Thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, uh, love to get your feedback, Podcast at amazon.com. Uh, Please do share the podcast with others. And until next time, keep on building.